have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. curious things the alien baby of this movie the the potential similarity between it and the squirms as we've talked about them before yes the squirmy wormies squirmy wormies we're not even sure if it is a baby like mary herself when the baby's at the hospital she's like we're not even sure it was born premature but we have no indication that mary ever showed signs of being pregnant yes henry didn't expect this happening the mother and mary didn't expect this happening i also got to point out the mother's name is mary Mother Mary having a potentially strange conception. You notice any potential reads you could have on that? Yes, because that means that the baby is, um, I forget the story. Is it Judas? Hmm. I don't think, I think that would be Henry would be Judas. I don't know. Is it, um, I don't know. What's other wrong answers? So Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. I think there's an argument to be made here that the name Mary is just too on the nose given the situation at hand. Mm. I wouldn't call it an immaculate conception. It does seem like they've done the dirty, although to be fair or done the clean, not trying to shame anyone. But Okay, maybe for Henry and Mary, it might have been the dirty. I don't know. In this movie, everything seems like the dirty. But I don't want to think about, like, doing the clean. Anyway, so, <laughs> Mr. Clean. Anyway, so. Don't. No. Somebody scrubbed his bubbles. Anyway, continuing. Continuing. Um, Henry doesn't answer when the mom asks, you know, hey, have you and Mary slept together? So there is actually room. There is room to believe then that he didn't actually have sex with her. It, uh, But his name isn't Joseph. His name is Henry. Yes. So make of that what you will. Um, There was a deleted scene that I don't think was ever shot. So we don't have it actually to actually I know it wasn't shot. So we don't have it to look at. (laughs) But um, this would have been where Catherine Coulson would have been in the movie. Okay. Um, That's the actor behind the log lady and the amputee. So there's going to be a scene where the parents of Mary were going to pick up Mary at the hospital with the baby. And okay. this disgusted nurse played by Catherine Coulson was going to hand them the baby, clearly not happy with this thing she was handing over. <laughs> it is interesting then that while Henry and Mary do take care of the baby relatively as though it's normal, what it is acknowledged in the movie that this is a weird baby. Like, they're not sure it's a baby. This deleted scene, if we consider it canon, would imply that the nurse acknowledges it's a weird-looking baby. They, they do seem to have some level of awareness that this is not normal, but not nearly the amount we would expect. I don't even think that we can even say that they're taking care of the baby as normal either. What would you say, what would you say if you were describing the baby to someone, what does this baby look like? The spawn of Jar Jar Binks. Okay, G- give me some vi- visceral visual descriptors. Beak. Beak. Chicken head, right? It's kind of chicken looking. No. No? Like a horse beak. Do we watch Angels Ate Together? It's a horse beak. We watched Angels Ate Together. Sure, but there's no horse beaks in there. You know how an angel's egg, there's the little, there's the birdies in the egg? Yep. Kind of reminds me of those. Nope. Okay, no. It does not remind you of that. It It does remind me of that. It reminds you of horse beak. Okay, Uh, it's very moist. I I would say if you were to rub your hand across this baby's head. Very moist. I think of it like wet rubber. That's the way I think of it. I don't want to feel about, uh, think about feeling the baby after you said potential cat fetus. And then uh, calf, not cat. Either way. Does that make it more inviting or less no. inviting? Okay. 
I mean, would you rather touch a calf fetus or a cat fetus? Listener, please help me. Listener, if you'd rather touch a calf fetus or a cat fetus, please let us know. No. Our email is snakeeyedreams at gmail.com. Stop opening Our Twitter the- handle is snakeeyedreams1, as in which one do you prefer to touch? Just, just stay away from this. Well, you still can. And then there's the eyes on the side of the head, right? Very, very curious eyes, squirmy wormies. But they're not wormies. They're just squirmies. Uh, and then peculiarly, unlike the other squirmies throughout the film... Uh-huh. I say other as though they might be the same species of uh-huh. Jar Jar. This one's got cloth bandages wrapped around its body. Yeah. What do you make of that? Because the other ones that we see, like the lady in the radiator step on, the one at the beginning from the prologue that dips into the water, none of those have the wrapping. They're just the, the, the tendril. The baby is wrapped up because it's supposed to have a very similar image, say, for example, to a baby being wrapped up in like a blanket or just a series of just swallowing. It is something that just is a shorthand that shows, hey, this is a baby. It also leads into later when something happens to that baby, in which we will get to at the end of the baby time. So I think that this is more so something that can be used symbolically in all ends of the film. So like at first... They, they take the baby home. We see Mary kind of feeding the baby. The baby. Mostly caring for it. I mean, Henry's on the bed, looks over at the wife and kid and kind of smiles. You know, you know, it's just... Generally okay at first. Generally okay. And just like seeing Mary deal with what I'll just overall call since like, I believe that this baby is born from his secrets and there's all sorts of issues that come through it. I'm not saying all babies are like this in general, but this is, I will likely refer to as the problem. When Mary (laughs) is dealing with Henry's problems, he seems all right, content and not really concerned too much. Really? It's okay. Meanwhile, Mary is very not having fun with the problem in which like trying to stuff food down the baby and trust trying to tend to it and take care it care of the baby it just doesn't work out well, like the first time it seems to really bother henry it's when he is having one of these like radiator fantasies one of the first ones he's like looking at the radiator he's kind of smiling and then we we see his fantasy get interrupted by the crying of the baby yep and when that happens you know it kind of takes him out of the moment you mentioned later when he's checking the baby later and kind of feeding it, he notices it's acting strange, takes the temperature of the baby. Temperature seems to check okay, but then he looks over and immediately you get the jump scare of the baby bumps, the bumpy babies. And he just says, like, Henry's just like, oh, he's sick. And No, Henry, he's a strawberry. <laughs> and it seems like Henry has no idea what to do if the baby's sick. Now, granted, if I had a baby I was feeding and then I look over and immediately it's full of bumps... I would also be confused about what to do. I probably wouldn't try to leave the apartment. So, like, there's various points where Henry feels like he he really wants to leave. Well, But he doesn't want to leave the baby behind. Like, the baby will cry and he'll turn around again. He's hesitating to leave. Well, he he's wants already to, helped because he turned on the humidifier and just sat there. He straight up was about to leave the baby sick and dying on the table just casually if it wasn't for the crying. He remembered his mailbox. The mail could have came at 2 in the morning. So... In the mail, he gets one of those little squirmy wormies, the squirmies, and puts it in that cupboard, yeah. right? Yeah, but around the time that Mary is still here, we get present. The, all the squishing of him. 
What do we make of the connection between this baby and those things? Are they the same thing? Are they a stand-in for each other? What's going... They look so similar. Because, again, I believe that the baby is born from his secrets. I believe that there is something of Henry's personality that that birthed, and he's just getting packages in that sort of feeds into that. It is something that continues this area of constant secrecy. See, when I when I see the late the lady in the radiator squishing the the little squirmies she's like got this playful expression on her i i feel like that is henry like his ideation of murdering his baby like i'm be real with you i feel like yeah the lady in the radiator is kind of his his daydreaming his fantasy world his little hopeful fantasy world and it's in that moment where she's kind of playing around with the idea of squishing them and then eventually does and kind of giggles. He's like, dude, I wish I could squish my baby right now. No, I don't think it's because the baby. I think that it's because it's at the point of sperm. I think that dealing with what he considers to be, this is not to all babies, this is not to all instances or anything like that, but the way that he kind of, like this baby is brought in through his secrets and just being his problems for someone to be able to not only like give a good smile to the point her cheeks are so swollen Mm -hmm. and then sort of like deal with something that could become a problem for him. That that's the point of ideal that I imagine for Henry. I, I take it to mean that as the film goes on, he starts to correlate more and more involuntarily and in the real world any sexual thoughts, any sexual acts with this baby. And not only that, other people start to do the same thing, most notably the woman across the hall seeing his head as the baby's head, kind of correlating him to the point where even when he's alone in the bed with Mary, for example, and we see him pulling out these long tendrilled, long-tailed squirmies from her, clearly it's, it's from her under the sheet, there's this sort of repulsion that he keeps pulling and pulling and pulling that he can't get away from the fact that, yes, this led to the baby. The baby has recontextualized everything for him, especially the act of sex. I think that maybe I don't really feel that is as much uh, to the close of the act of sex myself as strange enough with the sheer amount of sperm Mm -hmm. throughout this film. I think that as far as this individual scene goes, it's just... This baby, this overall thing born from his actions, yeah, is just that. It's something that becomes either his secrets that he's got to deal with and try to like tend to, and when it's starting to sort of bother him or get in his way, we see him just sort of like smother the mouth of the baby mm-hmm. and to in order to even just like try to focus on those points of sexual need. I'd imagine if it was something that was more akin to that, we'd probably get more focus on the baby, more sounds from the baby. But instead, we get more sounds from the baby when he's being that secretive, when he's sneaking out of his room, when he's trying to check up on the woman, and then after that doesn't go so well, the baby becomes all the more louder because in the end, the baby is his problems. Well, and if we take the baby as kind of an extension of his guilty conscience, which I think is a direction you could go with what you're saying, Yes. there's a moment where later on in the section of my notes I call the end of baby in my notes, uh, there's a moment where the baby is gagging and wheezing. That's what the subtitles say. But to me, it sounded like almost laughing at Henry. Again, subtitles say gagging and wheezing, but the way it was gagging and wheezing sounded a bit like cackling. Yes. I don't know if you felt that way I or not. I felt exactly that way. You did? Okay. Uh, that ending part, uh, it feels like it's kind of mocking him. And whether, now the question is, is the baby actually doing that? 
or is Henry projecting? Uh-huh. Could be either way. Henry at this point is like lying on his bed and it looks like he's going through a bunch of things in his mind. The wind is howling. The electricity's crackling. We keep hearing, or he keeps hearing like footsteps, the elevator noises outside. He's clearly like agitated, bothered. And this was right after, of course, the beautiful girl across the hall rejects him. Um, Not necessarily that that it is seems to be a form of rejection. Yes, she she turns away from him toward this other man. Yes, and we'll get to more of that later. But as soon as that happens, he closes the door, kind of slumps back against the door, and we see him grab the scalpel. At that point, he's kind of compelled, and he really does hesitate. He does question. He does pause. He does stop. But for his first true action, he begins to cut away at the overall bandages until it opens up to an overall series of organs. Which I do think of like the chicken or the turkey. Well, chicken in the movie's case, like what happened at the dinner scene. It does remind me of the inside almost cavity of opening up a chicken. Now, granted, I don't do that. I don't know for sure what that looks like. But that's what I imagine opening up a chicken would look like. Regardless, it is opening up the chest cavity of this baby. And at the side of this, after a few moments of very big sounds from the baby. Yeah. He then strikes at it. And the insides are mashed potatoes. that begin to growing out, making foam sounds similar to the grandmother. And there's like this high-pitched kettle whistle kind of occurring at the same time. Yes. The baby spits out blood. Henry starts to look away. He's like turning from it almost in shame or disgust. Yes. I think that as this baby has been stabbed and struck, again, using the angle of secrets, even when he opens up his secrets, opens up about his secrets, opens up about the things that are his problems, the biggest thing that happens when it is dealt with mm-hmm. it still leaves a mess it right. there's nothing that you can do in which is just going to cleanly bury this away it is something that begins to make a very not sanitary s- result so how, how did you feel it's about messy. this killing of the baby like the com- the like the culminating moment of the whole film what did you think about this scene how'd you feel it's very it's hard to look at it had made me j- avert my eyes onto the second viewing just because a lot of the practical effects are very effective but it also very much cemented my idea of this is what the baby is mm. it is the messiness that comes after trying to deal with either your white lies or your things you've hide off to the side because there is no escaping what you've already done. Which, I mean, if you want to take it that route too, as soon as he does kill it, you have more of these squirmies around, most notably a gigantic one, this big yep. giant head near the bed uh, that he's popping out in and out. Yep. That almost looks like it's going to like eat him, like it looms over him threateningly. Yep. So if we do take it more as a sort of metaphor for secrets, metaphor for guilt, uh, it's coming after him now. Yep. And Henry's response to this is mostly just to turn away, mm-hmm. to turn his head into the darkness. Mm-hmm. And what we make of that is kind of debatable. There's a lot of electricity happening here. Mm-hmm. Electricity. Yep. Where we get the lamp electricity sparkling, sparking, I should say. You get huge, huge sparks shooting out of the sockets. What do you make of the electricity element? Because right before we get kind of the final scenes here, we see a light bulb going out, Henry fading into darkness, the hole blowing up in the planet, and pretty much after that is when the ending scene happens. I mean, it's, again, one of those 
David Lynch mood setters. It is something in which things are erratically happening, darkly happening, and going so quickly. I think it is just a mood setter mm -hmm. more than anything, trying to reach those tones that he believes that would most consistently fit with the film itself. I think that he has a fondness for things such as electricity, judging by his reactions to things such as electrical plants. Yes. But with that fascination, I think he knows how to twist things around where it becomes very horrifying with such passion he has for these pieces. So do you think, aside from just Lynch's fascination with electricity, do you think symbolically or thematically electricity is important for this moment? I think that... Or for the film. I think that I could probably try to dig into one, but I think that David Lynch has a common use from my two instances of seeing it. With <laughs> well, them. in the short films, did we get much electricity there? Well, I think the last one that we found on the DVD uh, of the short film with the... Premonitions, Falling yep. an Evil Deed, Lumiere. Yep. That had a bit of almost, if not electricity, very mechanical sort of I mean, there was an electric rod it. that was seen to be electrocuting the woman inside the tube. Hey, it's hard to tell with electricity for me anyway. Sure. Other than that, no real use of electricity from the short films from what I recall. Uh, I guess if you interpret the way that it was made and presented, you could say six men getting sick. Mm -hmm. on the use of the external projector as well as the wailing sound. We saw more fire than we did electricity. We did. Which, I, there's not really any fire in Eraserhead. There is a lot of smoke and fog, but not necessarily fire itself. Yeah, but still sparks can create flame. Sparks and electricity and fire, they overlap a bit. How similar they are is debatable, but... You see, it's like a Venn diagram, you see. It is. I've never heard of a Venn diagram. What is that? It is a, it's a series of circles that overlap and you can compare things. So if you were to make a Venn diagram, mm -hmm. one circle is a Racerhead's ending yep. and one circle is a happy ending. Yep. Are the circles overlapping completely? No, no I don't, are they no. Are they touching? No. So you would call this ending worst case scenario. Almost. I think that at least Jack might be going out in peace, but I don't think that it's really going to be a good time judging from the sounds in the background. So let's, let's talk about the ending in the middle of our podcast. Well, what I imagine is the middle. Who knows when we edit it down, yep. where this will be. But let's talk about the ending now. So the final shot we get then is of the man, Henry himself, embracing the lady in the radiator and fading to white with large amounts of whoosh, crackle noise. Yep. Dense noise. Then a hard cut to the credits. Yep. So it's open. It's open to interpretation. She's smiling, but she's always smiling. Henry's expression, what would you say it is? It is, he's Henry. He is Henry. He's complacent. Let's say that. What do we think here? So we've got kind of two competing, not as even competing, two different but possibly complementing ideas of interpreting this as more on my side, I've been articulating this anxiety and fear about fatherhood that culminates in his wish fulfillment of killing the child that he views as an obstacle and then murdering said child before being haunted by the guilt. Your idea, very similar, but less of it being an actual baby and more of it being a stand-in for the idea of his secrets. Correct? So far, so good. So far, so good. So in both of our endings, he either just killed his literal child and or he killed or tried to kill his secrets and it clearly didn't, it imploded on him. I think that still, even with it imploding on him, I think that this scene of light, especially with the woman uh, in the movie 
and the movie of the canon of the movie uh, saying in heaven everything is fine. Mm-hmm. This is heaven. He this could is, be dead. He it, he could be literally it, dead. It could be death, but he's in heaven. It could be death heaven, or it could be mental heaven. Regardless, isn't death heaven a band, like a metal band? Maybe. He made a choice at the end of the film, which is much more. Do you get the bad ending or the good ending in this? He got his ending, which was a. It's his accomplishment yeah. to say. Whether that is good or bad, I leave it up to genuine interpretation. I think that him making an active choice for himself, though, instead of going on with the flow of everyone around him, mm-hmm. as well as probably his bit of escapism and just trying to fully escape his situation, he was able to ascend and be met with an embrace of something that I imagine gives him either comfort or something adjacent. And with that, though, we don't really see much to follow afterwards other than the spooky sirens that lead to going straight to black. I don't think of it as sirens, but yeah, I do know what you mean. I, I Again, I think there's a case we made that he literally could be dead. I, that's not how I interpret it. Just cut to black. Death. Goodbye. So long, so far. Friend. Because if we associate the thing that happened before with the electricity going all crazy, the sparks going all crazy, I, I don't think it's hard to believe. he dim just and stopping of the bulb, which turns dark. It could be that he just got electrocuted. It could be that the reason why he's in this white space is because he literally got electrocuted. In heaven, everything's fine. And honestly, that's probably where his headspace wants to be because, again, he's not. he's very passive. If everything's fine in heaven... Now, I don't know if this is... 100% apt because I haven't experienced these feelings, but I, I do wonder if for someone who's experienced like disassociation or depersonalization, mm-hmm. if this would feel like a potential analog for that at the end. Okay. Because I do get the sense that he is leaving his physical body space, that there's kind of a, a sense of distancing himself from the situation at hand. Very well. And again, if, if we take that looming giant headed squirmy to mm-hmm. be squirmy with the, with the W. I keep saying it the wrong way, but squirmy. Yeah. When we take that to be guilt or the overwhelming fear of what's happening, the fact that he turns his face away into darkness. If he's not dead, he could be retreating or attracting into a sort of state of denial almost or just okay. exiting the reality of the situation. All right. I don't know how that idea holds up for you. That's more where I lean. I don't think he literally got electrocuted, but I also think that... It's possible. It certainly is possible, whether it is uh, physical electrocution or metaphorical. Do you, do you think if Henry died and he got electrocuted, do you think the beautiful girl across the hall would go to his funeral? No. So in the credits, she's known as the beautiful girl across the hall. Uh, I think she's more of a woman than a girl. I don't know if that matters. I don't think it matters whatsoever. She's not a lady, though. The lady's in the radiator. Yes. So their first meeting, the beautiful girl across the hall, she lives in apartment number 27. She opens the door and she's wearing like this kind of a part, partly exposed front top and she asks if he's Henry. So second situation of someone asking if he's Henry after the mom did it earlier in the film mm-hmm. or before. I'm getting murder mixed up. You are. She asked it first, then the mom later. Mm-hmm. Which if we're going by your affair idea, it is noteworthy that the other person who says, are you Henry, is the mom. Yeah. Something you could do there. Something you could do. Especially since that person was also a beautiful woman. 
There's also a point later when the baby is at home and is sick. We, the viewer, briefly see the beautiful girl across the hall, like in the hallway, but Henry isn't out there with her. I thought that was kind of an interesting little like glimpse. Okay. I don't know what to make of that, mm -hmm. but there's that moment where Henry's not out there, but we see her. Did you have any thoughts on that? Not really. In fact, I completely forgot about it. It happens for like two seconds, and then it's his back. Two seconds. It's a strange little situation. This preludes their second meeting later when Henry has a knock on his door. And she emerges from the darkness. I really thought that was effective. Which is great because if it is at the same level of when we opened the door, that means that she's kneeling down at the doorknob before she's walking in. Isn't that what you always want to believe would happen? Yep, exactly that way, especially since it seems to electricity us out from the hallway. And she says that she's locked herself out of her apartment, and it's so late. Also, her outfit, she's got a floral pattern on the dress. For whatever reason. For whatever reason, flowers. And obviously, it's open again, more exposing. And when she asks where the wife is, again, Henry doesn't know. He seems to be very confused, bewildered. And she's so close to him based on the camera movement and where we see her that he's just kind of backing away a bit as she's talking. Which, by the way, during like her first entry into the room, like he is covering the mouth of the child as soon as a little bit starts to bubble mm -hmm. up. Again, almost as if he's hiding something, even though the, it should be very blatant that he has maybe a baby inside the room. So she asks if she could spend the night there, and we get a cut to them then kissing inside of a crater filled with, again, what looks like white liquid. In the bed. Naked. With the woman looking occasionally at the crying baby. Yep, and... Which I, I, I read the look as wary, is yep. the way I kind of... Not quite afraid, but like, she seems to be wary of this She's thing. becoming more aware of the baby, which may or may not be the problems. Which I take the fact that they then submerge into the liquid, I take that as a narrative shorthand for sex... If you want to go more on the physical side, possibly that moment of ejaculation. Potentially. It does look like she is going in secondarily into it as her hair sort of floats upon the surface. And this is the moment where when she kind of just sees something, which, again, I, I wonder if she's not seeing, again, the planet, the baby head sort of situation. It cuts to the in everything. In heaven, everything is fine. Yep. So curious that the in heaven, everything is fine is associated with this moment of the affair. It is the aftermath. It is something in which when one has a chance to breathe after the actions, it is probably something that feels relieving and thus is post-climax a very apt. There's end. a euphoria associated with the appearances of her. Again, there's a lot of things you could try to armchair psychoanalyze about this. Uh, what Henry's fixation on this one radiator is is very curious. Mm -hmm. But um, but yeah, it is it is interesting that that is the moment that that song plays. And then the last encounter we have of her again is where she's with that balding man. He's got like a almost like a dark, wetten cheek. Something yep. going on with his cheek there. Yep. And uh, he he seems pretty bothered by the fact that when she's with this guy, she doesn't really seem like she wants to do with him very much. She's kind of just with this other guy right now. And we get a cut of what's presumably her perspective, seeing the baby head on his shoulders, yep. which I take to be very clearly meaning that when she looks at him now, she sees the baby yep. that she thinks this guy is tied down to this baby. I don't want that in my life. I don't think that's tied down per se, but I do think that he is basically the baby. Do you have again with that, as I repeat myself, please take a shot. Uh, please don't actually take <laughs> please a shot. Don't. Uh, <laughs> of being his uh, little dirty pile of secrets. I've heard dirty little pile. I've heard like dirty little secret. I've heard I don't ever little heard dirty secret, dirty little secret, 
Dirty Pile of Secrets. One of those all-American reject songs, yeah. Yes, regardless, he is what he has made and put into the world. And from the face of disgust that she has when realizing or just like can't really disassociate him from that. Yeah. Uh, it seems that nothing is going to continue from there. He's made his bed and now he's going to soak in it. Ugh. So anything else on the beautiful girl across the hall? No. Okay, so the next figure we've mentioned plenty, but, but we got a little bit more to talk about is the lady in the radiator. So regarding this character, David Lynch said, and I quote, You will quote, The lady in the radiator wasn't in the original script. I was sitting in the food room one day and I drew a picture of the lady in the radiator, but I didn't know where it came from. But it was meaningful to me when I saw it finally drawn. So I ran to the set and looked at the radiator more closely. You know, there are many different types of radiators, but I'd never seen a radiator like this. It had a little kind of chamber, like a stage in it. It was right there, and it just changed everything. So then I had to build the doors and the stage and do the whole thing. Mm -hmm. One thing led to another, and there she was. Which, if you look at, yeah, in the movie, the radiator does have a weird little compartment. Yep. Which, again, coincidence and fate figure largely in David Lynch's filmography. I think that it aids because I think David Lynch puts an aspect of himself into someone like Henry for, like, looking for those points of fascination and sort of falling into it. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, no, yeah, I think it's very fitting. Now, a surprising amount of interpretation is put here. Lynch did say a little bit more about the lady in the radiator, more than I think he usually reveals about things. Quote, oh, please tell me more about the baby. No, no. Oh, please tell me more about the cheeky lady. Well, the lady in the radiator had bad skin. I think she had bad acne as a child and used a lot of pancake makeup to smooth that out. But inside is where the happiness in her comes from. Her outward appearance is not the thing. So you kind of made a comment. We were talking about it off pod that she smiles so much. It's made her cheeks puff up. Yep. He says, according to his interpretation, she used a lot of pancake makeup to smooth out the bad acne as a child. Yep. I like your interpretation more. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. Um, but it's interesting. I'm that right, he, David Lynch. Who do you think you are? It's interesting to note, though, that he says that the outward appearance is not the thing, which is very funny when clearly she has a notable outward appearance. So it's like David Lynch is saying, look, look at those cheeks. Ha, I tricked you. That's not the thing. It's just, again, kind of funny for him to say what's not the thing. Yeah. Feels strangely interpretive of David Lynch to just tell us that. Yes. I, I wonder if it's a mislead in some ways. I don't know. I don't trust him very much. Sometimes I wonder about you, David Lynch. <laughs> what are you planning? Also, more in curiosity, so back to the radiator itself. It's got that chamber, but then like in front of it, there's like stuff yep i stuff. couldn't tell what it is is it like thin wires is it grass oh it looks like grass like some shavings if you will because i couldn't tell if it was wires or grass again it, blurring the line between mechanical <laughs> electrical it looks like dirt in overall grass that looks like shavings that you'd have after sort of weed whacking the area so why is that in front of the radiator it's probably again tied towards things that are natural things that are good but at the same time, it makes me fear that the overall place is a fire hazard. Which, I mean, if we take the the dead, the death ending as a possibility. Yep. Who's to know? God. So, <laughs> uh, who's in the planet maybe right now? <laughs> Inside the actual radiator stage, whether you imagine it to be real or just Henry's idea. Um, For all the instances that it seemed real. It's got a spotlight in the center. 
curtains, kind of a checkerboard floor pattern. Anything notable about the stage or the presentation of that? Um, everything set up in the stage that will appear later. So in this case, we got the little bars off to the side with a small little curtain. We got the nice little archway. Again, those light bulbs mm -hmm. that you mentioned before. It is a constructed place that does not change. I think the use of it being a stage is notable. Like if we take it as important within the fiction itself and not just a convenient coincidence of Lynch noticing something on a radiator, is that... That means that she is an actor on the stage. She's a performer, that there's some element of what she's doing is implying an audience and she's performing for that audience. Okay. That's a pretty specific element then of what she is. Yeah. That this is something that she's putting on a show. And then later on, Henry steps onto that stage and almost becomes part of that show yes. himself. There's something you can do with that, especially given the amount of like metafiction layers Lynch likes to employ sometimes. Mm -hmm. I was saying that just yeah. thought it was interesting. Also the lady herself, she's got a flower on her waist. I Flowers. Feel like, I feel like there's something like a theme going on. Maybe. Here. Possibly. I couldn't put my flower on it, though. What did you um? What did you think of the In Heaven, Everything is Fine song? In heaven, everything is fine. That's what I thought. In heaven, everything is fine. If you want a larger description, seeing as you aren't even giving me eye contact now. Look at my notes. <laughs> it's a haunting but still calming tune. It's something that is, I'm not dissuaded from it being reassuring, but the deep organ sound in the background certainly makes it seem like a, that music after a tragedy, if it's, you will. It's eerie. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's eerie visually. I think the darkness of it is makes it just potentially problematic and disturbing <laughs> and then yeah the contents of it just the repetitive nature of it this sort of ass assuaging like any sense of worry like it's weird it's like it's technically what she's saying is very reassuring right like don't worry in heaven everything is fine but the situation again especially if we read it as a as a guy dealing with his secrets and his guilt it takes this sort of idea of just burying everything else like just mm -hmm. don't worry in heaven everything's fine like mm -hmm. there's kind of a menacing quality to that yeah and then she says you know you've got your good things and i've got mine which what do you take of that part of the song then well um yeah kind of like that i guess there's a bit of isolation that sort of comes from a statement like that i mean as much as henry's already usually isolated with himself just kind of focusing on the self why care about trying to put together everything around him when he's hardly got things put together for himself? He just wants to be alone, like left, left alone. alone. Yeah, the sort of seclusionary element in his personality. Yep. It's, uh, yeah, there's sort of this unwillingness to commit to sharing his life with a wife or child. Uh, there's not an unwillingness like to commit. Is. It's just that in words, he does absolutely does not want it. He'll right. go along with the flow if he needs to. Sure, you're right, you're right. It's just not what he wants and he won't actually say it. Yes. If you want to add more fuel to the fire, by the way, ha. on the interpretation that Henry does die at the end, I think it's notable that when Henry takes the hands of the radiator later, lady early in the film, when he takes her hands, there's like a white flare on the screen. Then he pulls away, touches again, more white flare. So there's association with touching 
her hands with the white flare. Yep. Well, if at the end there's so much sparking electricity coming from the outlet and the radiator is an electrical device, <laughs> I kind of want to believe that Henry could just reach over and touch the radiator and he got eclipsed by the white light, so to speak, uh, and the white light that takes you to heaven. Yeah. Again, I, I it's not necessarily what I believe, but I'm like, there's a decent amount of evidence that so much <laughs> electricity association with her yeah. That she could be like a Thanatos death drive kind of thing. This call to the void. Because <laughs> she's the one who potentially gives him the idea in his head of killing the baby. That there's this sort of call to death that she represents. The freedom of just escaping it. Which, again, is really dark territory if we take it as him purposefully seeking that out. Yeah. So on the stage, we obviously see the, the lady from the radiator at one point kind of wheeled in almost on its own. There's this mound of dirt looking like a science fair project. On a cart. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to do with that, other than it, the fact that there's mound of dirt everywhere. There's mound of dirt everywhere. I don't know. You got anything with the mound of dirt? It gets wheeled in very, like, noticeably. I, it looks like the overall thing he has on his bedside. So yeah. you go ahead and tell me what you interpret that to be, and it's uh, the same thing. Planting a seed? It does not have a pot. I know. It's not a good foundation for the child. Uh, it was a good enough foundation for the child and the grandmother, so why is it not here? grandmother and uh well the grandmother wasn't a baby the grandmother was the grandmother grandmother was the grandmother but the baby it might not be the baby if henry had produced a fully grown grandmother this would never happen <laughs> it is a plant that is growing out off on his bedside now much larger inside of this psyche towards the end of the dream after the whole head pop off thing and everything. I don't know. The, the, the mound of dirt is honestly one of the things I'm most struggling with, but yeah. it also goes back to the overall theme of the soil, the plants, and I and I don't know where to put all the pieces together for I, myself. I think that the biggest thing, if I will... You will. You must. What does, what does a pot do for a plant? Provides shelter and shape. It provides structure, if anything. Yes. And what's the one thing that it seems this world does not have, especially Henry? Color. It's all black and white. No, because it's also, like, that's still consistent with, like, a pot inside this movie, because we do see one later. I think you want me to say structure. Yes. Okay, cool. I said the right thing. There you go. You did it. You did it, Fran. Give yourself a pat on the back. You won eraser hand. I, I will say there's probably not a lot of structure in his life, because inside of that stage, he starts turning a pipe over and over again in his hands until his head pops off and a baby head emerges in its place. Yeah, because that's the thing that's sort of left behind. He is, his body is just kind of moving along with the motions, doing tasks that just sort of spin around in circles. Do not propel him forward, just is a mild distraction for anything. And at that point, the birth and the preservation of the baby remains, while any sort of potential function that he could have outside of it, where his overall head is at, is gone. It is removed and jutted out, because there's no need for it anymore. You could almost say that it even is a replacement for who he was, if you were to take the angle of what his parenting would become. David Lynch had a child around this time. Just going to keep saying that. It's going to bring that up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Make of that mm -hmm. what you will. Make of it whatever you will. So after his head pops off, it soaks in this sort of liquid that looks like blood, right? It, it's gravy. And it, it sinks into the one moment. It sinks into Plopping the onto the pavement concrete below. And losing the scalp. Losing the scalp. And this man credited as just bum in the credits kind of looks over and watches then as the boy 
as he's known in the credits, uh, runs over, grabs the head, and brings it over to a nearby shop of some kind. Yep, where we see potted plants in the windowsill. Which makes it seem like this is the least real thing of all, right? Mm -hmm. Or the most real. Who is to say? It's the most structured place. And inside the situation, there's a man at the counter named Paul. Yep, we know his name is Paul because... He summons this boss over. Yep, and what does the boss do? The boss says, after incessant buzzing drove him to this point, Okay, Paul! Yep, it seems like he's upset. And so Paul at one point wants to go with the boss and the boy as they are going to go inspect the head that has been retrieved, but he makes sure to tell him that, no, you know, Paul needs to go back. This man is very excited to see the head, like, and this boy bring in the head. The eraser head, one could say. Yep. Because it is then, I don't think it's really shown to be hooked up to anything, but it's heavily implied that somehow they're making pencils out of the head and testing them. They're making, no, the pencils are there. Like, he he has pencils loaded up at the top and shakes them out. It's just that this is something that puts the erasers on the ends of the pencils. Which, I'm curious what you interpret this whole scene is, because in a movie that's very strange, this is one of the strangest parts. Uh Aha, no, this is an easy one. This is an easy time. I'm sorry, Khalil, I solved Eraserhead. I'm the one who knows all the answers. I won the David Lynch. You win the game. I won. I won. I will win, but I also won. Time. Anyway, so the child brings it over, and that is when we get a little bit of the inside of the brain taken out the eraser head portion. Yes. And that noodle is placed into the machine loading up into these overall erasers in which they do test out the eraser at one of the heads that, that it keeps producing. It's just like PB&J Otter always said, use your noodle, do the noodle dance. Exactly. Uh, Disney, Ultra cartoon. Anyway. I'm still topical and fresh with the references. You're not. It's just Arr. that, like you know music, I know obscure cartoons. So We, we speak in the same language when it comes to PB&J Otter. Yep. I don't know if anyone else is speaking that language. No one ever. Anyway, continue with your valiant points. We are the only two viewers of that. I was going to say valid and salient. I turned it into valiant. It applies. Continue. Better than Valium. Anyway, after it sort of loads through and they get a chance to test it and just sort of lead in a stroke, he tries to erase it. And the answer is, it's okay. Like, it's not great. Yeah, it's work. It's okay. Like, that is the quality that they're coming out with it. What I feel is important is to know his job as the printing area, his overall reaction to the outside world, Mm -hmm. and the fact that his head is profitable in this way to these people. Mm -hmm. I find people like Henry to people such as the boss... Having someone be so passive and just sort of filling in these strokes and not being able to move up or anything like that, they are simply stuck, is the perfect aid to their needs, if you will, to if it is like mm. medial labor or to just He's try to help. He's a that fits the machine. Exactly. He is someone that is going to fit the needs and do exactly what he needs to do because there's nowhere else he's going and he can produce the most possible amount of product that is necessary i think it's also notable with the idea of an eraser that the eraser is known for eliminating erasing removing i think that considering that he's about to go erase his baby from existence after the scene i think you could argue if not judging his soul or his worth to corporations or to the cog in the machine which the worth is okay worth is okay it's fine you could argue that at this point, 
his mind is consumed with the idea of erasing, of eliminating, not just necessarily the baby itself or the obstacle, the problem, if you will. Yeah. But if we do take the more dark route, the idea of, of veering toward destruction, veering toward erasing. Um, I mean, what's in a name, right? The movie is called <laughs> Eraser Head. This seems to be the Eraser Head moment. Yep. The moment his head is turned into Eraser. So yes. I, I think that this is the weighing of his soul. I think it is a weighing of his soul, perhaps. But I think most importantly, it is to emphasize th when you actually think about an eraser head. Yeah. Now, when you're erasing something, when you draw something down, is it completely removed? No. No, there's remnants behind. Not only is there usually something left behind on the page, even lightly, unless you took the lightest of strokes, mm -hmm. there's also the bits of eraser that are also yep. left behind that are emphasized in moments during the film. Scattering to a whoosh. Scattering into a whoosh and lifted into the air. Cool no effect. matter what, it's, even when you try to erase things, even if you try to keep these secrets, mm -hmm. even if you try to go off on that passable note, there will still be things left behind. It's going mm -hmm. to be messy, likely, one way or another. I think people are really going to dig your inputs and observations on this one, Professor. Oh, thank you. You too. Thanks. Aw. I didn't want your gratitude. Too bad. It's right there. It's right next to the baby. So I, I think at this point we've covered every event, character, situation in the movie itself as pertaining to the main cast. Yes. Uh, the next sections I have for us to discuss are more about the settings and the kind of the outside worlds. So both of the city itself as well as the apartment. Yeah. Is there anything involving anything else you wanted to talk about before we jump into these last few points? You're looking at me as though there is not. I'm just looking at you as in we have asked many times on towards me on whether or not I need to move forward. And I say, yippee ki let us go forward through the pencil hole and make sure that we twist ourselves around so we become sharp and filled with wits uh, and the lead inside of our heads leads us forward in order to strike down on any sort of preconceptions or ideas that only we are in charge of. We are the masters of our own destiny. We are the beliefs within our own bodies itself. Allow us to be the ones who strike first as I embed a pencil straight into the neck of society. So David Lynch spent five years living in Philadelphia. Yep. He describes living there as an atmosphere of, quote, violence, hate, and filth. He said it was an area rife with crime, and he saw things he really couldn't believe. Now, regarding the movie Eraserhead, he said, quote, This is sort of a Philadelphia film. Philadelphia, to me, is a city that is really filled with fear. It's sort of a decaying, violent place. One of the deleted scenes, just to emphasize this point, would have had this group of kids killing a cat with a piece of wire. <laughs> Henry is then going to walk by and trip on the wire as kind of like an after effect of that scene. Okay. Now, David Lynch has also said that the protagonist of Eraserhead, i.e. presumably Henry, although he did just say the protagonist, which is a curious wording, quote, is living under the influence of those things that existed for me in Philadelphia. There was a sense of dread pretty much everywhere I went. I didn't live in any good parts of Philadelphia, and so the dread was my general feeling. I hated it, and also, <laughs> I loved it. So, Philadelphia, born, born and raised... raised. I don't think he was born and raised there. Um, he did live there for a little bit. I have not lived in Philadelphia. This is not to slander the good name of Philadelphia. Philly, I've heard of your cheesesteaks. I don't know anything else about you. I'm sure you're probably not as bad as David Lynch felt. Maybe you are. Don't know. You're a vegetarian. 
I've heard of the cheesesteaks. Didn't say I indulged in them. Probably have vegan or vegetarian cheesesteaks. Like with like tempeh or tofu or something. Or some sort of meat replacement. Sure. Sure. Anyway, continuing what I was saying. Uh, he seems to put a lot of stock in the idea that the city we're sort of seeing in Eraserhead is like Philadelphia. Born and raised. Now, really most of this film was shot in L.A., if not all of the film was shot in L.A. You mean they couldn't afford to constantly fly to Philadelphia? They did not do that, no. Uh. It seems like they had barely any money for anything, to be honest. <laughs> any thoughts in particular about the Philadelphia angle that sort of biographical element that's at play here that David Lynch had lived in Philadelphia with his wife and that they literally used their home address in Philadelphia as the house of Mr. and Mrs. X. The sheer amount of fondness that he usually shares with items that are usually negative Mm -hmm. inside of things such as his films, even with him implying negative attributes to that area Mm -hmm. uh, and also seeing his excitement at seeing things such as when he was filming Eraserhead. I don't think I could properly articulate on what the feelings are when I can't even keep track of David Lynch's feelings. He, he can hate something and call it like this abysmal area of fear and crime and then be like, I love it. Yep. So there is that there is that sort of weird inward tension between there to find sort of areas of decay very beautiful. Yes. In their own way. Uh, when asked why David Lynch loved the idea of a racer head, he said, quote, it was the world in my mind it was a world between a factory and a factory neighborhood. Yep. A little unknown, twisted, almost silent lost spot where little details and little torments existed and people were struggling in the darkness. They're living in those fringe lands and they're the people I really love. This is around the same part where David Lynch commented that Henry and his wife are people he sees as caught in the past. Mm-hmm. And he also made this comment that he imagines the city in Eraserhead as being the kind of place that, like, after 5 p.m., you don't see anyone outside in the city. Just kind of empty, other than, again, maybe the occasional brawl Mm -hmm. out in the streets. Uh, Speaking earlier to ideas of electricity, Lynch claims he doesn't know why he uses electricity in a lot of his work. He says he just happens to like it a lot, especially electricity from the 1930s and 40s when it was louder and not as quiet as modern technology. He kind of liked that big sort of smokestack era and fire sort of idea. You could almost call it quite the buzz. But he does say, quote, if you were blindfolded and drove down a highway under those power lines Um, and really concentrated, um, you could tell when they occurred. Yep, because you probably hit it. There's something very disturbing about that amount of electricity. They know these things now. Um, A tumor grows in the head. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not, you know, whacking you. David Lynch, take the blindfold off. (laughs) This is dangerous. So there's a sort of, yeah, raw power element electricity that he seems to think of as this unseen force that's still felt all around. Uh Uh-huh. I don't know, just kind of accumulating some pieces of quotes and trivia that I thought were interesting for building the world (laughs) of Eraserhead. As far as things we observed, what are things that stood out to you about the city of Eraserhead, the outside world? Uh, Brazil? I think I've said Brazil. Brazil. Uh, Brazil. Terry Gilliam's Terry Gilliam. Not the country. Not the country. Potentially the country. I haven't been. Haven't been. Haven't been. Is the country of Brazil like Philadelphia? Maybe it is just like Brazil is not just they could like the idea of this film, but it's also, you know, it's just continuation. They just filmed Brazil. They just filmed Brazil itself. Good movie. Good movie. Anyway, (laughs) 
No, I think that the very industrial feel, I think the lack of individuals, especially if we are, I do not think that the kids would have added too much other than just being needlessly cruel. Mm. I think that's the overall feel of emptiness in this area and the fact that there is such things as prized as dirt on people's walls. Yeah. Is very effective because it just leaves the viewer likely wondering, gods, what happened? I think almost the sheer lack of people does a lot for characterizing too, because we hardly see anyone outside. Yep. And we one time we do is when Harry's looking out his Henry's looking out his window and he sees that one guy beating up the other guy in a Which brawl out night. Makes no sense. Considering that he had a wall of bricks yeah. in front of his window before that. Man, it's so nice that someone removed the bricks from his wall. Again, is that literal? Were the bricks really there? Were they not really there? Who knows? Who knows who's where? Um, yeah, I, again, I think there's a, there's a lot of character development happening with the outside world. I think it's sort of a dark, gross place in general. Mm-hmm. Outside of the Mr. and Mrs. X house, there's just this, I don't know what it is causing all the steam, but there's some kind of electric or industrial element right next to their house. Yep. Do you know what that is? Nope. Me neither. It is industrial and that's all that matters at the end of the day because the sheer sounds and the overall use of imagination from that point on is all that really matters at the end and i I wouldn't say that the apartment that henry lives in is necessarily any cozier i mean i guess it's better than being out in the concrete death land hey khalil yes hey khalil yes chevron 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 so inside the lobby area of the apartment where the elevator is, sort of a dark, intimate lighting, chairs and lamp, and notably the, pa- the pattern on the floor, Chevron. Chevron, that Lynch would later reuse, obviously, for Twin Peaks in the waiting room, the and, red room of the Black Lodge area. Who and knows? since we are going through his filmography, I'm sure Chevron will never come up again. Probably not. Not once. No. Not twice. Never. Except Twin Peaks. You and I both commented after, uh, off pod as well that we like how the doors to the elevator are fake. They are, they are fake. They but are it's, very it's, much fake. It's, it's that interesting realm where this film operates a lot of times that it's clearly artificially constructed as a set, but it's real fake. Yep, it's real, real fake. fake doors. It is something in which it unnaturally moves the design on it. It feels very lumpy and melted. And when they sort of move away, it feels less like I'm going into apartment and more so going into hell. There's like that moment where we get like this stop motion. It's 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 like the squirmies, but it's like a little slug looking little thing that makes like noises. Yep. And moving in the craters. I feel like that is able to work so well because the movie, even though it's not mostly stop motion, it has that feeling of semi-real, kind of not real element that when you suddenly go to stop motion squirmy, it doesn't feel that odd. Yep. It just kind of fits the tone. I think it also helps that with the limited color palette of black, white, and gray all over, it all just feels very, like it's packed up in a delicious little lunchbox. And that was simply uh, an additional dessert, maybe a little bit of a cheese or a cracker or an Oreo. And this lunchbox, this lunchbox is getting pretty tight and cramped in here. It is very cramped. Because when you go up to Henry's floor on the apartment building, that hallway is like super narrow. Yep. Like super, super narrow. They have room for a payphone, a hanging lamp, but there, you can't have two people pass each other in that hallway. Nope. By the way, the most interesting of the deleted scenes, in my opinion, uh, there was going to be a deleted... Well, there wasn't going to be a deleted scene. It was a scene it that got deleted. Was. There was going to be a scene that was shot. It was made where Henry heard noises coming down the hall in the apartment. He would go to investigate and look into the room. And when he got there, 
he would see two women tied up on a bed and a man with a cigar approaching them, holding some kind of box that's like crackling electricity. And then the women spot Henry. He just runs back to his room. So that almost got an eraser head. It was shot. Lynch just decided it was a little too dark and disturbing for the content of the film. Oh, you know, in this otherwise non-disturbing, non-dark film. Mm-hmm. It's still heavily dark, and I do kind of see somewhat of it, just because, again, it will it may emphasize a little bit more on Henry's, again, lack of action. But at the same time, it seems like an extra bit of everything else we're getting in the film that I don't see why I would necessarily need it. But at the same time, I'm also asking myself, what does a box of electricity look like? I, I'm also curious, you know, given the description I just read, were the women there consensually or not? I would assume if it was seen as such a dark scene, they must not have been there. It must have been like a really bad situation that Henry just leaves. Like it could be all sorts of feelings I could have on this. Like if it's like a box that has like that little like central orb and electricity is crackling, that would be threatening. If it was a box and it was just closed and just electric sounds came from it, that would be threatening. If it was a Game Boy, like the classic Game Boy that's very boxy, less threatening. Well, you could just go for a GameCube. That's that's Game a cube was not shape. out, and Game Boy was Game not Boy out was either. not out either. GameCube. You thought Game Boy was out in 1977? <laughs> it also is in uh, black and green. I was going to say black and white, but that was a lie. It was a green screen. Maybe it's a toaster. <laughs> Maybe it's just a toaster. What is toaster if not electric box or uh, microwave? Uh, no, that has microwaves. Doesn't yeah, wait. well, that's electric. You need electricity for a microwave to work. Likely. Like, okay, anyway, continuing, <laughs> continuing. Uh, then we have Henry's apartment itself inside of the apartment. Uh, number 26 is where he lives. Henry's apartment inside of the apartment. Yes, mm-hmm. I am articulate. He's got a little box. You're the one who told me I was the wordsmith here, okay? <laughs> wordsmith of words. I there is, there's a lot of things you've already kind of touched upon, so I'm not going to re- reheat this burrito, so to speak. I'm just going to leave the burrito cold from an hour ago. But some, ob- some th- things that are around here. The bed sheets on Henry's bed, they're all tattered and torn. There's a scene we get later where Henry's like picking out the holes, which yep. leads you to believe that either he creates the holes by his fidgeting or he makes the holes worse through the fidgeting. To the side of the bed, we have that nightstand with the mound of dirt. We've talked about that, but then above the mound of dirt is a picture on the wall. What is the picture on the wall above the mound of dirt? Small little picture framed. Above the Mount of Dirt? Really? I actually thought for sure you would identify this one. I was identifying all sorts of other things. It is a mushroom cloud. It's a mushroom cloud. From like an atomic bomb. Ooh, mushroom cloud. Just a curious mushroom cloud bomb that feels really jarringly obviously there. Which I find interesting that mushroom cloud is a very easy way to describe it because, yes, it does look like those things, but mushroom cloud... It sounds so much more pleasant than what's actually happening. Well, and I think at at one level you could interpret it as being more of that epitome of conflating the natural with the man-made. Yeah. You've got the man-made chickens during dinner. You've got all the soil versus the wires and everything. Yeah. But then, I mean, to be fair, plant has two meanings, right? There's a plant that's like a, a, a flower or a leafy vegetable or whatever. There's also the industry plant. Yeah. There's a plantation of machinery. Pleasant names. I don't know. I think that dual meaning of plant comes to mind here that a mushroom cloud brings to mind the idea of of the shape of a mushroom, a fungus, an organic growth, but then it's made by man-made efforts of war and violence. Yep. 
ultimately born of fire as well. Walk with me. There's a lot of things you can do with the mushroom cloud. I'm only going to say those at least. Inside that top drawer of his dresser, we have a pot of water inside that he like gets to drop coins in. I think yeah. of it like a wishing well, Meet but same. like poor man's wishing well. Poor man's wishing well. He can make wishes at this time. He has two halves of a torn photo of Mary. Probably why was it torn? Now, I think it's not hard to stretch to believe that the top drawer, it is a literal top drawer, but also kind of represents like maybe part of his consciousness or thoughts. Yeah. That he has a fractured, torn wishful image. Wishful thinking for the pot. Right. Put a few coins in the wishful pot. Patunk, patunk. Yeah. Everything else I think I have on here we have talked about earlier. But bears no repeating. I asked you to answer a question. What? Why do you think the photo was torn? Oh. um, I think it's important that the photo is torn. Go on. Well, obviously, there was already issues with the overall relationship. When do you tear a photo? When you're angry at someone. Yeah. Yeah, in the privacy of his own home, no less. Maybe he saw the photo and he's like, man, I wish I had two photos of my beautiful girlfriend. If I rip this one in half, I have two photos. And then he realized, oh, no, that doesn't work. (laughs) And then the womp womps happen. Womp, womp, womp. Yeah, no, I think that he's genuinely angry and there's just nothing really great going on other than obligation. But he doesn't throw it away. He does not throw it away. In fact, there's something that I'm kind of thinking on uh, I'd like to extend upon. Please extend. back. Extend. Hey, remember that time in which he was having bad dreams inside this very room with this very person that he has a torn photo on? Yes. And uh, there is, like, she's sort of, like, fit wiggling around. In like the a cocoon. Zone. Yes. Yeah, n- maybe a cocoon, but kind of like wrappings, if you will. Uh, wrapping similar to the baby. In fact, she's kind of making... She's my wife. She's... Wrapped in curtains. Not curtains, bed sheets. What are bed sheets if not curtains? <laughs> but she's wrapped up similar to the baby. She's making mouth movements like the baby, and she's very moist like the baby. She also is producing things that look like babies from under the bed sheet. Yep, like the baby. The baby in the film is known for producing more babies. Well, you know what I mean. I'm saying there's a similarity there. I mean, like, he does produce more babies after <sighs> being stabbed. So, hard segue here. Hard stabway. So... We've postulated some ideas in Racerhead. No doubt, listener, you have plenty of your own. We would be very curious and interested if you wanted to drop some of your own interpretations or thoughts on Eraserhead in the YouTube comments for this or, again, through email or Twitter, snakeeyedreams at gmail.com, snakeeyedreams1 at Twitter. The numeral one. Numeral one is in one more of your thoughts would be great. Maybe more than one. I don't know. But ultimately... We don't think that there is one answer to Eraserhead. There's not like one, you crack the code, you did it. We'll joke. We'll joke. But am I correct, Professor, in saying that we believe that this is ultimately a work that is purposefully open to interpretation? Yes. To a very large degree. Yes. And I think that's kind of what makes it fun, is that sense about it. Fun? So I got a few things to say regarding this open to interpretation element of the film. Will you indulge me on that? Very well. Tell us how we're wrong. So Jack Nance, yeah, 1990 interview for the Twin Peaks fan magazine wrapped in plastic. Neat. He said, quote, you guys get way too deep over this business. I don't take it all that seriously. It's only a movie. So Jack Nance has continuously said like, ah, it's just a movie. He doesn't really think about it that deep. Okay. He doesn't want to get that deep into things. I, hmm. I think that maybe in a different way of deepness, mainly because if I can, I think that there might be a 
maybe not a pronounced or verbalized form of it, but kind of like how David Lynch was talking about the baby, Mm -hmm. the form of the baby, and how people are trying to find more out about the baby, Mm -hmm. and that sort of takes away the magic. I think maybe there might be somewhat of that in that sort of response for Jack Nance that something is a movie. I think there's a a, a slight but important difference between the two sentiments. Yeah. Wondering what the baby represents or what it is for the movie, I think David Lynch would be totally on board with. Yeah. It's wondering how it's made in real life. That I, David Lynch objected to. I'm not saying that their thoughts are necessarily the same, but I think that there's still a school of thought that yeah. can go into this in which trying to dig too far somewhat destroys the magic. The Sam Stanleys of the world don't necessarily get as far. I'm sorry, but that's wrong because I still <laughs> like to do exactly these things. And you have made it completely where you want to be. Yeah, I feel like I'm being insulted <laughs> the here. just starts weeping uncontrollably. I have been. This this whole podcast, you've been crying uncontrollably? Yes. Okay. It doesn't matter the tone of my voice or anything. I'm very moist. I'm going to hit you with some David Lynch quotes here, you moist, moist person. Uh, he had some thoughts. So David Lynch was asked what kind of reaction he wanted or expected people to have when Eraserhead would finally get shown to the public. Okay. And he said that he really wasn't thinking of an audience or what people would say or feel. Quote, Angelo Badalamenti. He said, Angelo Badalamenti. That was the end of the quote. Eraserhead is Eraserhead, and it was meant to be just that way. And however people react to it is fine. This is around the same time he was talking in the interview about how when he sees rubble and debris in kind of industrial environments, he sees beauty in that, going yeah. a long way to what we were talking about earlier. Yes. Quote, I love the idea that one thing can be different for different people. I like things that have a kernel of something in them. They have to be abstract. The more they are, the less likely this thing will happen. The maker has to feel it and know it in a certain way and to be honest to it. I felt Eraserhead. I didn't think it. It was a quiet process, going from inside me to the screen. I'd get something on film, get it placed paced a certain way, add the right sounds, and then I'd be able to say if it worked or not. Abstract things are important to film, but very few people get the chance to really go all out with cinema. Creations are an extension of yourself, and you go out on a limb whenever you create anything. It's a risk. So that was a bit of a piecemeal of a few different things he said around that same quoted portion, Mm -hmm. but all speaking to that idea of how he views the creative process with regards to abstraction. Mm -hmm. Any particular things stand out about that to you? Not at the moment, no. I think that it does genuinely feel... It feels like <laughs> as helpful as is David Lynch's response. Right, right. I think, again, more that idea that he has to find that kernel, that center of it, yes. and then build from that center, and that he wants people to come away with different ideas and different thoughts. Yes. He, he doesn't want homogeny out of the responses. He adds on to that with regards to the creative process. Yes. Quote, A film isn't finished until it's finished. Anything can come along and you realize that it's almost like the thing knows how it will be one day. Will the person discover those other things? The only way is to stay in there and be watchful and feel it. And maybe they'll pop into your conscious mind. But they've always been there somewhere. This one I think is interesting because the way he speaks of ideas, we talked about this with the Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, the wind idea. Yes. That it's almost as if he's describing that the ideas 
are already in your mind or in you somewhere uh-huh. or in the air, right? And you have to tap into those things. And the longer you can stay in that zone, the more you can connect to that. There's always that chance for these sort of happy accidents and scenarios to just sort of happen. Okay. That if you're in the right mindset, you'll notice, like the lady in the radiator thing. You know, he just happened to doodle it, then look at the radiator, saw the little box, and it connected. But if he would have rushed to finish a racer head and didn't take four or five years, he might not have found all the things that it was to become. You say rush, but at the same time, a lot of this did not seem like it could be rushed. Rushed in his opinion, maybe. Perhaps. That it, he needed to give the idea its full time to go to fruition. Okay. It makes you wonder, then, if there's other Lynch films that he didn't have as much time on, if he feels like he would have had a much better product over time. Mm-hmm. Like Twin Peaks with... Laura Palmer. Like, yeah, not having himself have enough Uh, control over that, right? (laughs) Right? Time. We've talked a bit before about the sort of fear of fatherhood, and we've hinted at the biological, I meant biographical, but I guess biological as well, element of the film with David Lynch's personal life. Yes. That he had that child at the same time. So there's plenty of thoughts on this. David Lynch outright denies that this is all of it because he basically said, and I'm paraphrasing him here, that if it really was just the divorce or having the kid, then there would be thousands of films like Eraserhead. <laughs> he said that, that that isn't all there is, that there's got to be more to it than that okay. for this to really make sense. So okay. he pretty much rejects that idea. Jennifer Lynch, however, from what I was reading, she actually does think that she was the reason for Eraserhead, basically. <laughs> so Jennifer Lynch was born out of an unexpected pregnancy. She was not a planned for child. Okay. And she was born with a birth defect. So she was born with, as she put it, severely clubbed feet. Okay. So she does think that her birth was one of the main contributing factors, if not the main contributing factor, for a racer head. Okay. An unexpected baby that wasn't the way you expected it to be. Okay. I don't know. Just think that's, again, interesting that that's what uh, supposedly Jennifer Lynch has thought. Hmm. Hmm, indeed. That's, that's, hmm. Things to chew on. Dude, yeah, I'm chewing. <laughs> I'm chewing. Upon releasing Eraserhead, David Lynch called this film a, quote, dream of dark and troubling things. <laughs> when he was asked in 1979 during an interview if he wanted to expand on that a little bit, Lynch said no. <laughs> when asked if uh, Henry is the dreamer or is he being dreamed, he also just didn't want to give an answer to that. Neat. So do you agree with the idea that Eraserhead is a dream of dark and troubling things? Yes. That's a pretty apt description. It is very apt. I think that there are multiple moments that you could say, yep, that's that. The same interview, I think it was this one, uh, he made a comment that David Lynch is kind of a strange person. And David Lynch says, no, I'm not really that strange of a person at all. He says, but within each person's subconscious, there are, quote, denizens of the deep. And how basically Eraserhead, for a lot of people, is a very subconscious film, sort of like a dream. He himself isn't necessarily strange, but he kind of is tapping into something he thinks that people just in general have. I think this is the exact response a strange person would give. Yeah, it is really, isn't it? Um, now, this is something that I think people who know Eraserhead pretty well have probably been waiting for us to bring up at some point. Okay. It's kind of infamous. So okay. two back-to-back things here. Go for it. In 2006, David Lynch's book, uh, The Catching the Big Fish, came out. And in it, he said, Eraserhead is my most spiritual movie. No one understands when I say that, but it is. No one so understands it's kind of a, me, it's kind of a meme. Dad. It's kind of a meme for David Lynch is that he'll say Eraserhead's his most spiritual movie and never explain why or how. Now, 
Another thing that's kind of famous here, this quote. Basically, during a time where he was having trouble putting together Eraserhead. Okay. Quote, I got out my Bible and I started reading. And one day I read a sentence and I closed the Bible because that was it. That was it. And then I saw the thing as a whole and it fulfilled this vision for me 100%. So Lynch has said numerous times he doesn't think he's ever going to reveal what the Bible verse was, but he has been adamant for decades that there is one verse in the Bible that holds the key for Eraserhead. Great. And basically, he saw this verse of the Bible and knew everything what was going on. Excellent. That's great. Luckily, there's not that many verses in what, what was it called again? The Bible? So, what do you make of Eraserhead being his most spiritual film? I know you haven't seen his other films yet, but that it's a, his most spiritual film and that he ultimately completed this with a single verse of the Bible. I think that, again, it makes it all the more of a personal work. I think mm-hmm. when it comes to spiritualism, you are oftentimes giving forward your own spirit, this overall tag that is very much uniquely yours at the moment. So. Do you do you read Eraserhead for yourself as a spiritual film? I think people read spiritualism as well as spiritual values as something that is intrinsically based on life itself. Mm -hmm. And when you put life into film, I think that that is when you come out with something like art. So, yeah, I can see it. I absolutely can see it because this in its own self, as I've kind of described for myself, is somewhat of that moving art picture, that moving gallery. So... Any movie is spiritual movie or just Any film can be spiritual, not all depending on how it is. Is the Muppet movie a spiritual movie? Maybe to some. Is it to you? And I haven't seen it. What movies are spiritual to you? Six String Samurai. Any others? I think that's the only one that really connects to me most. Okay. So you take spiritual to mean deep personal connection. I think that it's deep personal connection that can guide oneself in one way or another. Mm -hmm. In this case, it oftentimes guides me in my own sense of writing as well as my own sense of what I desire from life. And usually something like a mold like Six String Samurai is what I usually end up seeking Mm. and craving. So I think that that becomes my own form. I may be butchering an idea. (laughs) Well, I think your idea of spiritual is a bit different, at least from what I interpret Lynch to mean here, is that... I think he takes spiritual to be much more specific to not necessarily religion only, yeah. but the idea of something transcendental or something for the soul. Eraserhead notably came out around the time that David Lynch began performing transcendental meditation like daily, yeah. as well as an adoption of a vegetarian diet, stopping smoking and drinking for a while there. I know he definitely was a smoker later on again, so I'm not sure how long that lasted, but mm-hmm. there was a, a period here of spirituality from what I was gathering. That makes me a little curious. In terms of spirituality, I mean, I don't really know how I feel on it because I think, again, I, I brought up the idea of God and the machine potentially with the man and the planet. Yeah. But ultimately, I do view this as a more personal story about fatherhood, anxieties, and secrets, and I tend to not view it as a spiritual allegory necessarily. Okay. Um, And the movie that I get the most spiritual element, I guess, if I had to call it that from Lynch would be Inland Empire, but that's more the fear of demons in my soul. (laughs) So that's, that's a different kind of spiritual. You don't fear demons in your soul when you look at Henry? No. Inland Empire is, is extra hard mode. Ah, 
The Dark Souls of Lynch. I, it's, okay, it's the Dark Souls of David Lynch. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. One area also uh, of ambiguity in this movie is even genre. Mm-hmm. Um, we mentioned before how the grandmother was very hard to place for genre at like film competitions and such and film showings. What genre would you primarily call Eraserhead? Sci-fi. Is this a horror, meme or is, this a, is it mainly sci-fi? Thriller. Mystery. Mm-hmm. Comedy. If you had to pick one. Action. It's not an action movie. <laughs> What's the what's the main label? If you had to, if you were okay, you were the manager at a video store in the nineties, uh-huh. okay, and you had a VHS copy of Eraserhead. You only have like genre categories. Gotcha. What aisle do you put this on? Trash. You just throw it in the trash just, can. I'm not dealing with that. No. What That's would you do? I, I'd put it under horror. I real if I had to put it in one category, it'd be weird to put it in comedy. Yeah. It's not an action movie. It's not a family movie, although I it's, guess it it's kind of a family movie. It'll eternally be in the new release section. It's always a I new cannot, release. I cannot move it. I mean, I don't know if it fits into one of those categories very easily. No. It, you could argue drama. You could argue it is a drama. I argue drama over horror, even though there's horror elements. Throughout. I think the effect is more horrifying than dramatic, but I yeah. mean, there's a blurring. I think that the effects are horrifying, but I do think that the overall story is something of a very personal, emotional, focusing on oneself. Journey. Now, David Lynch, he describes the first half of the film as being an especially strange black comedy. Okay. So he does think of the first half of the film as comedy, but he also says that it has to be a very specific kind of comedy in order for it to switch into fear. So he does view it as a comedy that switches into fear. Yep, not horror, fear. Yes, very distinct, very (laughs) distinct. So kind of just like looking at all this then, if we were to summarize what this movie is about in like one sentence each, let's do one sentence each. We want to go first or second? I'll go first because everyone's going to hear the same thing again and again and again and again. Man just tries to hide miserable pile of secrets. Backfires. Okay. Good. I That's will... two sentences. Unless, like, is it one semi- sentence semicolon one was used. You used a semicolon in there. Sure. Don't worry about the it. the wordsmith here. Don't worry about it. I would say a man. Mm-hmm feels like he is losing his sense of self as he has trouble deciding what to do or what not to do about unexpected developments in his life. Man, I, that was a marathon of a sentence. That was not that long. Yeah, it was. It was like a I couple to, clauses. There was a point in which like, I had to like stop myself. I had to take myself a little bit of a drink break, watch as some runners ran ahead of me, but kind of continued because I had to finish off the race somehow. I, I do think of this film as being similar to The Grandmother in a, in a sense of that sort of anxiety about the parenting, except the difference being here that... It's less about the child coping with an abusive environment and more about the dad just murdering the kid. Um, but I the mean, idea of the father attacking the child, the mother more of the whimpering character in the background, but both ultimately just done with this kid. It yay. is kind of a persisting idea between the two works. Oh, no. I don't know. It's interesting, fertile ground for narrative. Either way, Grandmother as well as Eraserhead doesn't really end up on a high note. I mean, yeah, both have really dark endings. Yep. I, I would argue. I mean, I guess you could you could read them as happy. They're both ambiguous endings. Uh, I certainly don't read them as happy. Yay. Yay. So now I bet you're wondering, did Eraserhead's 
financial and critical legacy have a happy ending? No. Let me tell you about that one. The answer's no. So, January 1977 review of Eraserhead was published by Variety, the magazine, and called it, quote, a sickening bad taste exercise, which, quote, pulls out all the gory stops in an unwatchable climax. The mind boggles to learn that Lynch labored on this picture for five years. Boom, roasted. Yep, luckily in the future, we'll never have to worry about any productions as long, if not more, of five years that would end up flopping. And Lynch will never have that problem with critics calling his work dark, depraved, violent, or in some way, like, unwatchable. Nope, he is a clean, sanitized human being. Everything's okay. Doing well, the again, clean. I only experienced him with, like, again, minor doom, doom knowledge. This film, short films, and Twin Peaks. So I don't know his history with But people. even Fire Walk With Me is enough to prove that this is going to happen again. Eh, yeah. Now, now, like Fire Walk With Me, though, it definitely has a positive view nowadays. Yeah. In Japan, maybe? In everywhere land. Oh, everywhere land. So Eraserhead, Eraserhead currently, according to my trivia, though I did not verify this, holds a 90% certified fresh rating from Rotten Tomatoes based on 40 reviews. That might be more or less depending on when you look at this. Yeah. This movie has been pretty much cited by a lot of creators as being very influential for them. Uh, two creators in particular, John Waters, famous for movies such as Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble, and Stanley Kubrick, famous for such films as 2001 A Space Odyssey and Eyes Wide Shut, have mentioned it as being one of their favorite films, to the extent that Kubrick reportedly has also in the past, well, he's not doing it anymore, uh, required... Uh-huh. Required the casting crew of The Shining to yeah. watch Eraserhead before shooting to kind of get them in the mood. The, a mood, certainly. Which, you know, you've seen The Shining. Would you believe then that the crew was told to watch Eraserhead? Uh, didn't the kid make it out alive? <laughs> yes. Then spoilers? No. I don't know. Maybe spoilers. <laughs> Who knows? Mel Brooks saw it, and that is kind of famously how David Lynch got to direct The Elephant Man, is that Mel Brooks kind of vouched for that and pushed for that. Well, Mel Brooks is the guy behind, like, Spaceballs, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, um, that... Blazing history, Saddles. Blazing Saddles, yeah. uh, History of the World Part One. Yes, that same Mel Brooks, I believe. I don't know all of those, but yes. Yes. At least half of those. Yes. If not all halves. Yes. All three halves. Producers? No, I don't think that was Mel Brooks. But yes. I think it might have been based on something with Mel Brooks. That sounds kind of familiar uh, being involved with him. Anyway, George Lucas uh, famously saw Eraserhead and asked David Lynch to direct Star Wars Return of the Jedi. What? Yeah. David Lynch almost directed Star Wars. It sounds fake, but this is actually a thing. <laughs> I don't know if there's ever been like a lot detailing like what happened here, but Lynch basically chose Dune kind of instead you want to think of it that way, that, you can. I'm not. That, that's probably or oversimplifying it, but so I just want to make this straight. It was yeah. after specifically Eraserhead. I would assume that he decided that yes, this man is fit for Star Wars. From what I was reading, yes. Then we know for a fact now that there could have been the conception with Jar Jar Binks. I mean, David Lynch had one other film out by that time. Yeah, which would be The Elephant Man, released in 1980. So it's between Eraserhead and The Elephant Man, I guess, depending on when George Lucas originally asked David Lynch. I don't know The Elephant Man, so I'm just going to assume that it's not the as Jar Jar. It's, it's not as much as Eraserhead. Okay. Much, you can assume what, what adjective you want after the much. Farewell. But it's not as much blank as Eraserhead. <laughs> Swiss surrealist H.R. Giger, who we've mentioned before 
in passing. I mentioned uh, Giger more in passing, parenthetically, if you will, through uh, referencing Dark's, uh, Darkseed, Darkseed 2 in particular. Before. Yes. We talked about what a Twin Peaks or David Lynch game would look like. I mentioned Darkseed. So H.R. Giger has stated that uh, this is, or cited rather, this being one of the greatest films he's ever seen. According to Giger, David Lynch declined to collaborate with him on Dune, though. He wanted to work with David Lynch on Dune because David Lynch supposedly had felt that Giger had stolen his ideas. Oh. So if that's to be believed, if Giger's to be believed about this, Lynch looked at uh, Giger's artwork and saw it as stealing his ideas. Ah. H.R. Giger is largely notable for being kind of the inspiration for the designs of the Xenomorphs in Alien, mm -hmm. which if you're looking at the Xenomorphs and you're looking at that kind of art style versus the Alien Baby and Eraserhead, I could see parallels. I could see similarities, but... I don't know. Again, I tend to be generally more lax slash anti-intellectual property to a certain extent. So <laughs> I'm kind of saying work with it, use it. It's fine. I think no, riffing on it's fine. Especially to... if you're giving credit to Lynch, you're saying he's a big influence. I don't know. That's my beans. Shame on you. And then I'm going to end here on some thoughts with... Catherine Coulson and David Lynch on Eraserhead, their thoughts on the film. As I'm losing my voice, rapidly dying. <laughs> so when Eraserhead debuted, Catherine Coulson's brother came to see it with his seven children. And for large portions of the movie, he would have to put his arm over the eyes of the kids, which I don't know, seven kids. That's how far is this? How long span? is this arm? It's a Space Jam scenario, right? <laughs> and, um... We found a quadruple feature opportunity. Watch Eraserhead with Osmosis Jones, with Brazil, with Space Jam. Yep. Quadruple feature. All, all the all the similar films. All the flavors of ice cream all that the, were necessary. The Neapolitan Venn diagram. Neapolitan has three flavors, not four. Anyway, he put his arm over the kid's eyes. And after he watched the movie, he told Catherine Coulson that she could have told him. But she said that to her, she didn't really think of it that way. To her, it was just a simple love story. She was so used to the movie by this point that she didn't even think, oh, yeah, maybe don't bring your seven kids to this. These seven children will never sleep again. Oh, come on. Depending on the age of these kids, kids see way worse. I don't think I can sleep tonight. I have a I have a, a friend of mine who, like, he would talk about how when he was, like, eight or so was, like, getting into the Silent Hill games. And it's just, like, when I was eight, seeing anything from Silent Hill gave me nightmares, but he was like diving into them and like really getting into them and stuff. Yeah. But these are seven separate minds. One to seven childs will never sleep again. I mean, statistically, some of these kids are never going to sleep. I agree with you on that. <laughs> and then when asked for the 1997 book, Lynch on Lynch, what he, David Lynch thought of a racer head. Okay. He answered quote, well, for some time we had to look at some new prints of a racer head a couple of years after it was finished. And I was in a different sort of place and able to just relax and see it. And the film was over. I said, it's a perfect film. And then it says laughs. I don't know how to do a David Lynch laugh. <laughs> That's good. I'm going to go with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only time I've ever said that about anything I've done. I was just really happy with it on that one day. Mm -hmm. So at least one time, David Lynch watched Eraserhead and said it was a perfect film. That's a good record. That's a good record. I don't know if he still feels that way now, but he definitely looks at Eraserhead with fond memories <laughs> and views it as one of his better films, it sounds like. Good for him. So, yeah. Yeah. That's Eraserhead. Yeah, it was Eraserhead. Yeah. We talked about the baby. Got talked about the baby. 
Before my voice goes out entirely, I have two wonderful and strange questions of the week for you. Okay. Professor, do you feel yourself ready for them? No. Is that the, that you asked the question? Good. Okay, that's, not that's one your first of, Don't pull a genie on me. Don't pull a <laughs> don't pull an Aladdin 1992 genie on me. <laughs> Listeners, don't fact check if it was 92 or not. Do it anyway, and while you're at it, watch Thief and the Cobbler. So my first wonderful, strange question of the week. Take this however you want. How do you think Eraserhead would be as a film if it was in color and not black and white? This whole movie was in color. I think it would be way less effective. I think that using the imagination and allowing everything to be dulled out just so that you're hyper-focused on the brightness and the darkness of it is one of the biggest benefits to the film. I think that it is almost necessary for the overall feel of this at least specific film. What if we had, instead of the red room, you know, in Twin Peaks, what if it was just a black and white room? Would that have been more effective then? Do they... Do we just call it the gray room then? Yeah. What if what if instead of the red curtains and chevron, it was more of the black and white with the chevron? Um, no, it wouldn't fit. I okay. think that there is a need for color whenever it comes for, especially the beautiful lush ends of nature itself. The nature of red curtains. The nature of nature and where we're brought into the juxtaposition of something black, white, and red. Mm-hmm. I think that these very striking, bold colors with, the overall just mush of nature okay. is almost necessary for that form itself. Okay. Obviously, I live in a reality that neither uh, of these opposing ends exist. Sure. But... I mean, we could very easily take the footage of the Red Room and make it black and white. There's we could. photo editing, video editing programs that do that. We could. I just think that the, there are certain points where you kind of pull your cars, where you put your aces in your places. Okay, okay. Uh, then my my last wonderful and strange question of the week, Professor. After watching Eraserhead, I did. How has watching Eraserhead shaped your views on David Lynch as an artist? As far as an artist in general, yes. However, you want to take this, really. Okay. As an artist in general, it it shows a heavy amount, especially knowing the things in the background. It shows a heavy amount of dedication to the craft. That is very, not only like a breath of not necessarily fresh air, but familiar air Mm. that I am just, again, thoroughly impressed by his ability, not only to create something, but also bring other people in enough to convince them that this needs to be made despite all other obstacles. I think that, again, the physicality of a lot of the scenes is very impressive for what moods it needs to be. But nudes, nudes are necessary. What nudes are necessary? Uh, no, no nudes were necessary <laughs> in the like making of this film. Moods. Moods. Moods like the cow, but with the DS. The Nintendo cow. The Nintendo cow. <laughs> and I look forward to seeing how that may morph, mold, and shape in the future, whether it's Twin Peaks adjacent or not. Very well, very well. Uh, next up, we're looking at... Some Twin Peaks material, I believe, right? It'll be Twin Peaks regardless. Look forward to Twin Peaks on this Twin Peaks logcast. And after that, we're looking at more David Lynch films. Starting off next, after the next episode next, we're going to next look at The Elephant Man. The movie that Mel Brooks vouched Lynch to create that may or may not have almost got David Lynch to direct a Star Wars movie. That may or may not have elephants or man. It doesn't have Jack Nance, though. 
No, that's a sad. That's a sad. You know, I really liked last time, Professor, where we ended the podcast. I don't know it was last time. It was the time before last time. We ended the podcast on a rendition of Marcy Dotes. Okay. Do you think it's fitting that we end this episode on a rendition of In Heaven, Everything is Fine? If you want to go musically when it's about one in the morning for our neighbors, by all means. You don't have to do it loud. Let's do it. Let's do an ASMR version. Okay, farewell. Okay. So I'm going to do a little countdown over here with my okay. hand fingies. In heaven. Everything is fine. In heaven, everything is fine. You've got your things, and I've got mine. Look at my knees!